One of the key things that I've learned being at the helm of the company is to always surround myself with people who've done this in the past to again, reduce the number of mistakes that we will make. We always think about a company being a collection of people and the outcome of the company would be the kind of people that you actually have doing the input in the company. I think what made these you know, early stages of Unravel possible was just the collective passion that people had in working in these environments where they knew this was a major problem. So really understanding where the community is going, what systems, technologies, and applications are getting adopted, and always having a pulse in that ecosystem to deliver what's next. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, Managing Partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm super excited to have Kunal Agarwath with me today on Founder Real Talk. Kunal co-founded and is CEO of Unraveled Data Systems. He co-founded the company in 2013 and prior to that led sales and implementation of Oracle products at several Fortune 100 companies. He also co-founded earlier in his career a company called Use.com, which was a pioneer in personal shopping and what-to-wear recommendations. Kunal holds Bachelor in Computer Engineering from Valparaiso and an MBA from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke. I first met Kunal in 2017 at the introduction of my good friend Venki Ganesan from Menlo Ventures, who led Unravel Series A. I was immediately impressed by Kunal's enthusiasm and ambition, his willingness to admit what he didn't yet know, and his desire to learn really rapidly. He also had amazing command of all aspects of Unravel's business. We were lucky enough to lead Unravel Series B later that fall. The company had a terrific 2018 operating well ahead of plan and more recently announced a $35 million Series C funding led by Point72 and Harmony Partners. GGV participated in this round above pro rata. Kunal, it's awesome to have you on Founder Wheel Talk. Welcome. Thank you, Glenn. Great to have you as a partner and great to be here. Awesome. So first thing I wanted to talk about was the co-founding of the company. Your co-founder is Shivnath, Shivnath Babu. He's a tenured professor in computer science at Duke. Is that where you guys met? Yes. Uh, Shivnath and I met at Duke University, and we both collaborated on this particular problem that we wanted to solve. I think where it all comes together is our passion for creating a product that was solving a very deep technical issue that probably every company in the world would use one day. This is what really helps us both get our vision together and create Unravel. How did you convince you know, a professor at a great university to get off that train and get on the startup? Yes, not a lot of professors are risk-taking people. But Shivnath and I, I think we connected on that same reason, which was he wanted to do something that would be used by a majority of companies, something that was core to a big wave, uh, like data analytics, advanced analytics, and big data. And I think our ambition of taking something that we started from scratch to something that would be meaningful in an industry like big data is what us what got both of us excited. Mm. And we ultimately quit our jobs and moved West Coast. I used to live in New York, he lived in North Carolina. And in hindsight, everything is 2020. So it worked out well. 
Great. Let's take a step back. Give us the elevator pitch of what Unravel does and tell us about kind of the initial vision and how it's evolved over time to the extent it has. Right. Unravel is the data operations platform for modern data applications. Every company now is turning into a data company and they're using data analytical apps such as machine learning, AI, IoT, etc. Managing these applications and making sure that they run well is black art today. And Unravel helps you automate root cause discovery as well as resolution for all these common challenges that slow down enterprises from adopting these kind of applications in the first place. Of course, the first product wasn't so comprehensive. We were thinking about how do we speed up applications that were running on a MapReduce framework mm -hmm. and then soon realized that companies use a mix and match of various systems, starting from Kafka to Spark to NoSQL platforms and MPP engines, etc. So we really then started building out a more full stack solution from the ground up. And now companies use us either on premise or on the cloud and across these various technologies. And the vision of being core to making sure that the data operations and data activities actually work properly is something that Unravel is able to deliver on today. So it sounds like the the vision for the company has expanded, right, as you've gone along, sort of have kept to your roots and heritage, but have continued to add on to that. Is that coming from customer feedback, or wh where does that vision come oh, from? 100% from customers' uh, requests. We're a very customer-centric company. Every discussion, every project in Unravel starts off with defining which customer asked for this. Then we become careful about not building for a customer, but building for the market. So thinking about customer requests, where the winds are going, the data ecosystem has been very dynamic, especially over the last couple of years. So really understanding where the community is going, what systems, technologies, and applications are getting adopted, and always having a pulse in that ecosystem to deliver what's next. Mm. Yeah, I want to get back to the dynamic ecosystem you're playing in, because that's definitely uh, unique to Unravel, and I think a, a lot can be learned from how you guys are navigating it. But I'd love to talk a little bit about your team. You know, you guys started building the team, and like lots of other founders, when it's early, it's it's hard to recruit people, and yet you've been really successful recruiting people even at, at the earliest stages. By the time we invested, you'd already brought on a VP product and VP engineering. Were these folks you knew beforehand, or or how did you convince at such an early stage right. good people to come on board? <laughs> we always think about a company being a collection of people. And the outcome of the company would be the kind of people that you actually have doing the input in the company. So right from the get-go, we knew that we would have a problem attracting the top engineers from companies that have IPO'd already or were super hot. Think about everybody from Google to Netflix to Facebook, etc. Tough to compete there. Very tough. But I think if if you talk about, you know, what the passion of the people and the work that they've done in the past, you'll tend to find people that connect with you in your vision, and then they want to join you in that journey to go and achieve that particular vision. This is what we found to be very useful in the early days, is to go out and network with everybody that we could get a hold of, whether they were practicing big data technologies, whether they were on the creating side of big data technologies, and really helping them understand what are we trying to achieve with this company at Unravel. And then we were pleasantly surprised with how many people actually thought about that being a core problem the way Shivnath and I were thinking about it. And they left very cushy jobs uh, to actually join Unravel. 
if you look at our VP of products or if you look at our head of data insights and our chief data scientist, a lot of these early members of Unravel, which are really part of the founding team, I would say, work without a salary for mm. for a year, some for maybe a year and a half, two years as well, Wow, on a very limited salary. And I think what kept these people coming to work every day was the belief that this was a very, very core problem to solve for this entire data analytics ecosystem to move forward. And they truly believe that we're making a big impact in actually resolving some of these conditions that, that slow down growth. Obviously, people foregoing salary is not a sustainable yeah, strategy. Especially in Silicon Valley. Yeah, especially in Silicon Valley. <laughs> but uh, you know, in a, in a prior episode on Founder Real Talk, we had Tim Westergren, who's the founder of Pandora. And he talked about you know, how several times in Pandora's life, as they were really struggling in the early days, people worked without salary. And he felt like it was super important in those moments for him as, as founder and leader of the company at the time to really be the flag bearer of that. So he was very public about not taking salary and when he asked other people to either take reduced or yes. no salary. So I assume you and Shivnath were also oh, no. in that There was boat. no salary drawn by either Shivnath or myself. I remember we only used to have enough money to pay one of our front-end developers who we had got on a consulting basis. Is perhaps the only person that was actually getting a consistent monthly payment of any sort. Yeah. Everybody else was treated almost like family, which was, what are your expenses? What are you looking to spend? Can we help you make sure that you're at least making rent? But there was no salary of any form, especially in the very early days. And again, what is a lot that? of willpower, a lot yeah. of Red Bull, which kept us going. So in addition to willpower and Red Bull, what, what is the when people are sacrificing for a common vision, like they were in those early days, like... Did that build some strength and resiliency into the company, do you think? And not that other companies can necessarily employ specifically the strategy of not paying people, but like what are the benefits of of that like shared sacrifice? Right, definitely not sustainable for the long run. So we had to have a plan in which we showed success over time to again fuel the next phase of growth. Mm-hmm. Whether that was raising our seed round, whether that was closing our first customer getting our first customer check, getting some money in the bank from you know, selling these products. Those were all very significant milestones, especially in the Unravel's early history, which made it all worth it. We made a lot of sacrifices. We didn't have a fancy office. Red Rock Cafe or Starbucks is usually where we worked at. And that was really our office. So again, I think what made these you know, early, early stages of Unravel possible was just the collective passion that that people had in working in these environments where they knew this was a major problem. And we just had to figure a way out to get the solution that kept these guys going every day. And once we had a seed round and a second seed round of funding, things got a little bit easier, but not as easy. <laughs> so we slowly started you know, paying some folks, making sure that they're getting comfortable, yep. that they're not thinking about the rent every day they're coming into work. And then once we signed a few customers, that's when we went to raise Series A. It's almost pretty anti-Silicon Valley, where we didn't want to go out and raise millions of dollars without having a product that's actually selling. And that was important for us as well. Because once you start scaling up, and then you have to cut costs or cut salaries, I believe that's even worse. That's tough. Than you know, not having salaries. Yeah, get-go. I've often talked about, like as a startup leader and CEO, a lot of people don't realize, but one of your primary jobs, if not your primary job, is managing momentum. Yes. You have to have momentum continue to build. 
And part of that, I think, is is being a terrific salesperson. And you know, in order to do that well, you need to have that vision that everyone can get passionate about and 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 share it. So it sounds like you guys have done a great job there. I would love to hear everybody else's input yeah. and unravel about this as well. <laughs> exactly. So I want to I want to shift gears a little bit. One of the other things that I noticed when we first were coming into the company is you didn't have any go to market leadership at all. And I thought it was really interesting you had retained a guy named Herb Kunitz as a sales consultant. And Herb is a guy I'd known previously when, when he was uh, running sales at Hortonworks. You know, he, he had a lot of experience right, as a sales leader. What did you learn from Herb? And, and looking back on that, do you think it was the right move to have a consultant? Do you sort of suggest to other founders that they do something similar when they're getting going? Yeah, so stepping back, just as we were thinking systematically about momentum and when to get these different heads of various departments inside the company, we strategically did not hire somebody on the go-to-market function because we wanted to prove it out to ourselves that there was some sort of a repeatability before we had a sales team on board. Right. So we did a first couple million dollars of sales as founders. I was the AE, Shivnav was my SE, and he would go out there and learn everything about pitching to installing the product and doing customer success in the entire nine yards. By the way, I think that really was compelling for me. When I was looking at the Series B, you just knew so much about every customer and every corner of the product, and I think that probably comes from being an AE. Just being there. (laughs) Exactly. So there's real benefit to that. Right, And, and once we had repeatability, we felt now we can actually give... A some sort of a half-baked playbook to the sales team to go and execute on while they're still learning how do we scale this up. Where Herb Cunitz came in is, you know, the way I think about running a startup is we're going to make mistakes, but we need to reduce the number of mistakes we're going to make. And one of the key areas of doing that is to seek help and advice from people who've been there at least once, if not like Herb Cunitz, multiple times over. So Herb and Mitch actually were very instrumental in helping us think through pretty much every aspect of the go-to-market function, which could be the process itself, team building, what kind of people to hire, what are we looking for in terms of raw skills, how do we create the entire engine all the way from demand gen to selling to upsells and customer success, and really putting in the seeds for a successful organization which knows how to win. So Herb was very instrumental in helping us I think about it as getting shortcuts and getting some hacks on the go-to-market side, which is very, very instrumental for us. Now, beyond the consulting gig, Herb's always been a good friend and an advisor, so I still reach out to him from time to time to think about the next stage in growth. In his particular case, he has probably hired, managed, or overseen 5,000 salespeople, and I get the same kind of advice work if I'm talking to other CEOs or other CMOs, whether that's marketing. So one of the key things that I've learned being at the helm of the company is to always surround myself with people who've done this in the past to, again, reduce the number of mistakes that we will make. I like that, reducing the number of mistakes. Pay tuition on someone else's dime. Yes. (laughs) So shortly after we invested, you made the decision to do a search for VP sales, and that was a a big decision, right? And it seemed like the right time. You had done a lot of founder selling and, and had kind of set the stage for this. Now you had a bunch of references in the market, et cetera. You met a ton of folks in the search process, Ultimately, you set your sights on Luke Roquet, who was previously at Hortonworks. And I had heard Luke's name a bunch prior to that because he was um, Rob Abbott's protege. Rob is VP sales over at HashiCorp. And um, they worked together at Hortonworks. And so you know, he had told me how great Luke was. But how did you make a decision that Luke was the right person for Unravel? And then 
Obviously, when you're recruiting somebody who's gainfully employed and doing well, that's not easy. What yeah. are some of the tricks that you've used to, to, <laughs> to bring on a guy like that? Yeah, so whenever we hire anybody at Unravel, especially for an important position like VP of Sales, it really becomes three things. Past performance, raw skills, and a culture fit. Luke definitely had sold to companies that were employing data analytic technologies in the past, knew how to do complicated enterprise sales, for example. So there was definitely a lot of check boxes that were checked off, looking at past performance and thinking about you know, how would that person fit it to Unravel. On the raw skill side, which is even more important for any hire that we have inside of Unravel, and for this one, the raw skills that we were really looking for is somebody that has the horsepower, somebody that is willing to learn and step up to the plate of leading sales for an organization like Unravel. But perhaps a cultural fit, I would say, is even more so important than yeah. that. And Luke fit this criteria really well. So one of the key things that we have when we look for a cultural fit is somebody that's hungry but humble, somebody that has a chip on their shoulder, an itch to scratch, something to prove. And we found all of those qualities in Luke, which is, you know, he had never led an entire organization for sales, but he definitely wanted to do that. And he wanted to prove himself in this particular area as well. And you cannot replace hunger with anything else. So there's there's massive hunger in achieving and overachieving and making sure that quarter by quarter, year over year, we're hitting our numbers, but that we're able to scale our organization in a meaningful fashion, that we are able to you know, achieve the goals that we set ourselves for the future years. So speaking of scaling, when you hire functional leads, execs, you know, they then go hire a bunch of people, right? So if you get it wrong, if you get a hire wrong there, there's a cascading problem that comes. And conversely, if you get a hire right and they add a great team, then you're really adding to the ability to the company to scale. And you've now hired you know, folks to run marketing, finance, sales engineering, and, and there will be more, right? How hard have you found it to hand over control? Because you had all these jobs at yes. some point. Yes. So when you hand over to control, how do you manage that process? Because Obviously, if you hand it all over and walk away, then things may not go quite as you want. At the same time, if you're really hands-on and micromanage people, they, they can't do what they're being paid to do. Right. So where's that balance and how have you found it? Whenever we've brought in somebody to lead a functional area at Unravel, I've always thought about it not as that person's going to be doing everything in an isolation and it's only that person and that person alone that's responsible for executing on this particular area. I think about it really about they're an extension of the person that was originally running this. So if I was running sales, marketing, finance, for example, I think about it as Luke, Steve, Jaya are helping me achieve those functions at a scale that I wasn't able to do. Mm-hmm. So still involved, but still involved at a level where the leads have autonomy and they have enough room to execute the place that they want to execute. Now, my confidence in them executing this comes from everything we spoke about, especially from the cultural fit side. But then if you look at, say, Steve, for example, or Jaya, for example, uh, Steve is our head of marketing, Jaya is our head of finance. Both these people have done this role in the past multiple times over. So if you look at Steve, for example, he was CMO at AppDynamics, after which he was CMO and CRO at Origami Logic. And what attracted me to him is usually you have CMOs you know, in their journey to become CEO or lead a company. But a person wanting to do it all over again 
take a company from 10 million to a $3.7 billion exit and then say, this is something that excites me. And this is another gig that I want to do to scale this company from where it is today to another potential multi-billion dollar exit. That's where I saw the alignment with Steve coming on board and really helping unravel out from step one. Once you have that kind of alignment and, and everybody is you know, aligned to the North Star, I think it makes it much more simpler to hand off these duties mm. because we know that we're all shooting for the same target. And another piece about culture, which is being hungry but being humble and always acting with humility has been very keen and Ravel to make sure that everybody on these different teams are aligned together. We pretty much have a team with no ego. People love to work with each other. If there's some things that are not working that are cross-departmental, then it's all about sitting down and figuring out how do we fix this problem and move ahead rather than looking back and pointing fingers. So I think the cultural aspect, which people usually glance over and you have to really ingrain that from the get-go in the organization has been super crucial. Mm. So on that point about culture, you've mentioned hungry but humble. Is that kind of the essence of how you describe Unravel's culture today? We've got three or four major cultural values. When we first raised Series A, the first thing we did was we took everybody in the team, back then it was 11 or 12 people, for a two or three day offside to Napa where we would talk about... Did you stay in tents or did you actually pay for a hotel room? No, we were actually <laughs> uh, doing wine tours and uh, drinking a lot of wine oh, past 5 p.m. Once the Series A came... Of course, just, then okay. we started living large. Okay. <laughs> no, just kidding. But it was a well-deserved three-day offside. But what we did in that offside between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. was really sit down and talk about what makes our company. What kind of people do we want to hire? What kind of company do we want to be? You know, unintentionally, we were really thinking about what are our cultural values. And it really boils down to a couple of key points. Uh, smart, hungry, humble is definitely one key one. Another one for us is that great is not good enough, which is all about you know doing something that's really meaningful and putting your heart out to execute it, but then not resting on your laurels to make sure that you're continuing to innovate in the case of tech. In the case of sales, you continue to out-execute yourself. In the case of marketing, you're thinking about creatively about all the new programs that you need to run in every functional area, right? And then we're always looking for people, like I said, who are out there to prove something, who have a chip on their shoulder. This is one of the key interview questions that we ask everybody is, why do you want to join a company like Unravel? And if their answers are not around something meaningful that they're thinking about fitting in their long-term career goals, then it's not going to be a fit for us. Coming in here to just do the work that you were tasked to do, you're not going to be a fit at Unravel. Mm -hmm. And the way we've thought about this is a lot of times, you know, how do we how do we maintain and preserve this culture? So there have been times where we've looked at engineers and we said, this is a 10x engineer, it's going to really move the needle. Uh, we should definitely have this person on board. But that person wasn't collaborative. That person wasn't one that would sit down with three other engineers and work. Yeah. And we've had to make tough calls to not hire that kind of a person, saying that this person's not humble, this person's not going to work out well out here, and you know he's going to be an individual contributor, but not a team player. So those are some things that we've tried to adhere to as much as possible to make sure that we keep those cultural values in place. And every time we start a new business unit, we always think about making sure that the first three or four people within that business unit, we spend a lot of time hiring those guys 
because then they become the torchbearers to make sure that they're only attracting the similar kind of talent within their organization itself. Yeah, I think it's much easier to make sure culture permeates the organization at 10 people, and now you guys are 100 plus, it must get a little harder. Right. You're also in multiple offices. Have you had some hiccups on culture as a result of growth, and how have you tried to deal with those? Yeah, so say you start sales in different countries around the world or different cities around America itself, having a very well-defined matrix of cultural values and putting the weightage on cultural values as being an important part of the interview program is very essential, just as step one. To make sure that everybody is abiding by the cultural values, it's also important to keep a check on those things periodically to make sure that if somebody is not adhering to it, then we take the necessary action with regards to that particular cultural value. Secondly, we've got an office now in London, we've got an office in India. We make sure that we always cross-pollinate. We just had our uh, big product summit that we did here in Palo Alto, where we invited about 15 to 20 engineers from India to fly over, come over here, spend time with our engineering and product team in Palo Alto, got to mingle with each other, got to work with each other over a three or four day period. We also had an award ceremony at the end of it. About three out of those seven or 10 awards were all based on culture. Wow. Keeping up with, you know, staying up late at nights or whether that grade is not good enough or whether that person was hungry and overachieved in certain areas that they weren't even asked to do. And then we always have leadership going from here in Palo Alto to India as well all the time. And similarly with London as well. So we have a bunch of people flying out from there. And once you have people working with each other, people who've interacted with each other enough and seen each other face to face, then they tend to get along much, much more easier. Do you do daily stand-ups or, or weekly oh, or yes. monthly all-hands yes, where you, you kind of get everybody globally absolutely. on, on, on a, a Zoom together? Level, absolutely. So yes, over-communication is the name of the game. Your company Slack is doing amazingly well for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> so we're always slacking. Yes. Uh, but if you see our Slack, we actually have a channel called Shoutouts, which is, we were doing this analysis, which is the fourth most used channel in That's Unravel cool. Cool. You know, offices, which is product teams giving a shout out to the sales engineering guys, sales guys giving a shout out to the engineering teams, everybody giving a shout out to each other about how they went above and beyond. So that again reiterates the cultural values, especially in a dispersed team like this. A lot of people talk about emojis on Slack, but do you guys use photos too? Because sometimes it's fun to like... I have been emojified on Slack already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Photos are good too. Like I don't know if you guys use them, but like when sales... Teams are out at you know oh, yeah. XYZ company and just yes. snapping a picture of the the, the building and it just makes it real for yep. more real for everybody even Absolutely. if they're you know not all if, the sales pictures are there everybody at a bar after the work all those pictures are up there as well <laughs> <laughs> the entire team we went out to the ball game the other day to see the San Francisco Giants ah. so we share all of those pictures the team in India actually went out for a trip to Kerala out in the backwater so wow. they had pictures of that as well. So absolutely, and then if you go above and beyond, you get emojified and unraveled. So that's actually a badge of honor. Okay, I'll look forward <laughs> to seeing that. So you guys, you know, a lot of the companies you serve are very big companies, and you know these are demanding, demanding kinds of companies. So what what kind of pressure does that put on Unravel as an org? You're still a startup. You're a fast growth company, and you're starting to scale, but you are not IBM yet, and you're serving big companies. How are you managing to do that? Yeah, this has changed over time, 
where in the very early days, we would literally do anything for a company that was paying us dollars. Mm -hmm. But going back to what I was saying originally, which is it's very essential to take a stand and step back and start building product for the market rather than for a company. And once you have a very good understanding of what the market is demanding, then you'll notice that the requests from the companies are not that far away from what you've actually developed and delivered. Mm. There's, of course, going to be nuances with every company. You go into any bank, they're going to have a very different security requirement from one bank to the other. That is not going to go away. And you have to have a stellar field team along with your product team to go and deliver on those unique pieces that is just going to be out with every company. But as a common set of problems and value props that, you're, uh, that you are providing through these different organizations, if you have not done your homework uh, early in the process, then you're going to be going in a lot of different ways. So I think that's one thing that we did very well at Unravel, looking back, is when we started the company in 2013, we did not start to sell product till about 2016. And the first two or three years, a little bit slow, were really product market defining years where it wasn't just product development, but really customer development through product. Mm -hmm. Thinking about who would be the right buyer for this, what problems are they facing, and really thinking about the 360 that we think about right now. Does this person have enough pain? Does this person actually have budget to pay for this particular product? Uh, will they buy something like this? And at what price will they buy? Test it out very early. So that when you have the pressures of delivering 50, 100 accounts in a particular quarter, you're able to meet those kind of demands because now you've understood it in a systematic fashion how to go and deliver to all of these companies. But yeah, you know, all these companies' needs and demands change all the time as well. So what we do that's differently and on a very tactical level is to confine their requests, whether we're doing a trial with them or whether they're a paid engagement, is to have a joint success plan with this customer. Mm. What the joint success plan does is firstly aligns ourselves to saying, our guys are not here just to sell the product. Our guys are here to make you successful with these problems that you currently have. And let's set a timeline for that. And they would say, okay, say it's four months or six months out. And then we start walking backwards from this is where you start seeing value to what are all the steps that we need to do in order for you to get over there. And in that way, the customer and Unravel becomes partners in that entire exercise. And we're making sure that we are adhering to all of these different timelines to actually get to that particular state of value. Are you monitoring like progress towards that Absolutely. joint success state? Absolutely. And then from there, it actually becomes a customer success program that mm -hmm. we lead our customers through. And we hold EBRs with our customers every quarter to go over all the value that they realize with Unravel or they haven't. And what are the key reasons why they realize value and what are the key reasons and why they have not. A lot of times, while these companies are demanding, they may be holding back resources or not contributing right. to, to the success as much. And they need to be notified this ahead of time. Yep. You're not having this discussion just one minute, no, one month before renewals. No surprises, right? <laughs> yeah. So the big data space where you guys play, lots of open source technology and um, like very dynamic space, lots of changes, lots of new projects coming up. And you alluded to the fact that you know your, your customer needs have evolved quite a bit over time and probably will continue to, right? So internally, how do you manage that? How do you align like product and sales and engineering to ensure that you're going to build the right thing at the right time right. for what the market needs? Right. If you look at the data analytics space and with modern data applications, there's several dozen technologies out there like Kafka, Spark, Hadoop, Redshift, 
Athena, Drill, Presto, Impala, Elasticsearch. I can just keep going on and on. The NoSQL guys. Right, and then that entire segment of market. Yep. Um, what we've done is made sure that from a product side, our product is extensible and our product is adaptable to all of these new technologies. We've created something called Blueprint, which is really a way to snap a new area that we want to go and work on with the learnings that we've had from a previous mm. area that we've worked on That's before. Cool. What we've also done is with the evolution of the market, when the dust has settled in, there have been certain systems that become uh, most widely used compared to the other ones. And we started off by focusing our energies there so that we are serving 80% of the market instead of serving a very fragmented market. And then one of the value props that we have for our customers is the full stack nature of our software. So we get the pulse of what we should be building next by triangulating what the customer wants, where the community is going, what the vendors and the platform providers are actually building out, and then really making sure that customers put this in production, right? That is very key. There's a lot of projects out there that you know will get a lot of uh, attention, especially in its early life cycle because of all the hype around it. But when you start looking at who's truly using it, who's truly paying for it, and who's truly deployed it, you'll see that that number starts diminishing. So we want to make sure that we develop products that are actually going to be used by companies which are using all mm. these different systems. Mm. So that's very, very key for us. And this is an ongoing exercise inside of Unravel. And probably will be for many, many more years. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. With the complexity comes the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. All right, Kunal. So we're putting you on the hot seat now. It's time for the speed round. I'm going to ask right. a couple of questions. Just, just give me the first thing that pops in your mind. Tell us about your favorite book for founders. Favorite book for founders uh, would be The Power of Habit hmm. uh, by Charles Duhigg. I usually like reading about founders and entrepreneurs themselves uh, to learn about all the ups and downs and the complexities that they've ha had in building their business. But the power of habit cuts across all of these where it's all about how do you create a habit, how do you change a habit, how do you reform a habit. And I think this could be applied personally, it can be applied to your product, it can be applied to your team to really get output. Very, very good book. Definitely recommend it. Cool. All right, I'm going to check that one out. I've not read that. How about a company or founder that you admire and why? I really admire founders that, that have built companies strictly out of passion, not thinking about companies on day one as an economic return. So I have to go back and think about maybe Enzo Ferrari, who started Ferrari because he wanted to pay for racing when he used to be at Alfa Romeo. And he didn't start it the other way around, that he had a company that then went racing. So he only sold enough Ferraris to have enough money uh, to have a racing team. And when Ford you know, famously tried to buy Ferrari over six months of negotiation, there was a line in that agreement which said Ford would also control the racing division of Ferrari, which is Scuderia Ferrari. And not, that doesn't sound too good to him. And probably. then Enzo walked out of that meeting, leaving Henry Ford and his posse of you know, 30 or 40 people who came with him in Italy stunned. So that's the passion that he always had around racing, and that's why I really admire him. Okay, you may have just uh, uh, given us a little clue as to what this answer is going to be, but... Tell us about a hobby when you're not unraveling. <laughs> <laughs> How would you guess? Uh, I do love to race. I do love to uh, go out for a good drive whenever I can. Being in California helps us 
you know, get all of these nice twisty mountain roads uh, yeah. to go drive around, and of course, beautiful weather. If I wasn't doing what I'm doing, I would be a race car driver. Is there a car you like to drive, like a favorite car? Well, I like to drive them all. <laughs> <laughs> but I really love Porsches. And in fact, 49 Porsche was a great founder too, because he built a car that wasn't a boring family car that can technically have your family sit down in, but it still be a sports car. And that's okay. why he made the 911. Got it. All right. Well, now we know uh, that Unravel needs to be really successful. Do you <laughs> afford all the cars you want in your garage? Last question, what's the best piece of advice anybody's ever given you? That would have to be my dad, where he's always told me to uh, think big, give it everything that you've got, but act with humility. The think big part is the part that gives you ambition to go out and do something meaningful with your life. And that's why I left family behind and moved out to America, and I've lived here for so many years. Giving it all you got so you have no regrets when you're looking back at things. Things may work out or may not work out the way you were thinking about it, but it's very important to give it your all. And then always act with humility. That's something that I've learned from my dad as I was growing up, and that's something I follow very dearly. Well, I can say as a board member at Unravel, an investor behind you, Kunal, I feel really fortunate because I see you putting these things into practice every day. You you think big uh, and you're going for it, which is awesome, and you do so with humility, which is I won't call it a rarity, but it's not something you see every day in founders. And so I want to so say thanks so much for joining us here on, on Founder Real Thank Talk you. today. This, this is was a great episode. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at Heavybit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.